Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. We are back at DLD in Munich, uh, the European event, I think, for thinking about the future. And of course, in January 2024, the future is dominated by thoughts of artificial intelligence of this current AI revolution that many believe, people believe will change the world. But there's another way perhaps of looking at AI, a way of triggering spirituality, of going back rather than forwards. Uh, and my guest today, Ken Kukier, has been on the show several times. He works at The Economist. He's a, an eclectic man, a man of many tastes and disciplines. And his instinct, it seems, when it comes to AI, is to think of it as a revival of spirituality. Um, Ken, is that a fair way? I don't know if AI itself but is a revival of spirituality. That wouldn't be right. But it would be that AI is going to help usher in a revival of spirituality. I think that's an effect of AI. It's not inherent to AI. And it's an effect simply because it is we are being posited to better appreciate what it is to be human and who we are, in part because we now have this new entity, new device or tool, that could be more intelligent than we are. And we often equated our intelligence with something that was unique to the human species, and now we know that there is a form of intelligence in the world, in this case an artificial intelligence, one that we've created, we've engendered and brought into being, that can actually surpass our ability to understand. And so it will have to force us to rethink who we are and what we do. And part of that rethinking is going to be our spiritual characteristic, our capacity, <clears throat> excuse me, our capacity for transcendence. Ken, I wonder uh, whether one reason we seem so fascinated with AI is because it's smarter than us or it promises to be smarter than us that potentially brings out that spirituality. I think we're fascinated up for AI on uh, on many levels. Uh, first, I think the although some of us are fascinated by a scientific and engineering bent, I think there's more people in the world who are just terrified by AI, and that's captured the the public imagination. Or that it is even possible for AI to do what does seem to be like magic. You ask a prompt a question, it comes back to you with a personalized answer through GPT technology, large language models. So, and then of course, to say nothing of the images that we're seeing and the videos that are still in early form. So all those things are just sort of capturing our imagination. On a deeper level though, what I think is taking some of the wiser minds by storm is to understand, as the late Dr. Kissinger put it, that the AI spells the end of the enlightenment. And what he meant was that the enlightenment and the humanist, humanist tradition put the, the humanity and the human mind and rational thinking at the center of all that is knowable in the world is no longer the supernatural of, of what was told to us through divinity and the authority of the church. Scientific method was born of that period. A liberal democracy was the instantiation of that principle of the open society and of query and of, of knowledge for its sake to and the progressive ideology that we can actually make the world better. Uh, through the dint of our acts in the world, which didn't really exist prior to the Middle Ages and that the birth of the open mind and the open society. But now what we're realizing is that 
were not the fount of all that is knowable in the world, in fact, there is this machine intelligence that can actually know better than we can, faster certainly in a scale, and therefore pierce the frontier of knowledge. And it's not even certain that we will understand what it knows, because it might know something that we consider ineffable, but for it, in, it, in its understanding of complexity, it can divine. We already see early forms of that in academic papers that are coming out in terms of research on retinas to identify the sex of a, uh, an individual, which ophthalmologists didn't know was even possible, but the AI can actually predict with 97% accuracy. It's a Google paper from about 2019. So that is an early form of showing the trajectory of where things are going. As it's doing that, we believe that there's artificial general intelligence, that an AI will be able to do everything that a human being can do, and I think that's not true. An AI can be better at us at the I, at intelligence, but it's still the A, artificial. We are human, we are living, and we also have the capacity for transcendence, for something outside of ourselves higher purpose, deeper meaning, that which we know not with information but in silence. That to me, that spiritual dimension of our humanity is something that AI, I don't believe, can ever do. And as a result, we have something that the machines don't. So you, you're still in contrast with uh, Dr. Kissinger, who recently departed, of course. You're still clinging on to the Enlightenment. So Kissinger, um, not entirely. I think he's right. And one reason why it's so resonant with me is that I've been saying it for years before him, but of course no one's going <laughs> to care about what I say. But when he says it, it sort of validates it. And I should also say that he wrote it in his book, uh, The AI Age, in a far better treatment than I could have ever given. Yeah, it's a very good book. Great book. And far better than treatment than I would have well, done. He wrote it, it with uh, Eric Schmidt. <clears throat> Yeah, and, and with, with Daniel Hoffenheyer of, uh, um, MIT. of MIT. But but the fingerprints of each chapter are on the academics who are the co-authors, and th that was definitely being a student of his work, metaphorically speaking, um, but from his earliest um, PhD thesis at Harvard on the Congress of Vienna, I feel like I can decrypt what is the Kissingerian element of the book and what are the others, and that one is all Kissinger. So I, I totally get it, and he did a masterful job. In fact, The Economist made it a book of the year, and when we made a list of the best AI books to read, I was the one who authored it. I put it as the first one to read, if you only read one, that. So I, so it's to say I have incredible respect for it. So I don't disagree with him on the question of the, of the, of the, of the, the end of the Enlightenment idea. He is not actually, so I don't think there's any daylight between us there, but he's ever weighed in on the idea of the spiritual dimension of, of humanity. Uh, and uh, now, of course, he's in a different place in which he's either, you know, suffering the burn fires lower down or the angelic liars up above. Either way, the, uh, it, we, he, we don't need to rely on his his intellectual framework of AI, what all we need to do is look at Silicon Valley and this materialist, hyper-materialist view that an AI can do absolutely anything that a human being can do. That just as we are made up of atoms and happen to be instantiated in biology, so too the machine is made up of atoms and happens to be instantiated in silicon. And with enough transistors or neurons, we get consciousness and therefore we get who we are. And so an AI should be able to be conscious and an AI 
should be able to be everything that a human being can. I think that's completely wrong. In fact, it does a gross injustice to us as human beings, the life force that we embody, and if you will, the degree of the sacred, which I think we all owe to each other. Ken, does your thesis suggest that some of the, the great late 19th, early 20th century sociologists, political thinkers were wrong, particularly Weber and Nietzsche, who, who, who seemed to believe that the future of humanity and of the world would be rooted in the demystification, in the, the end of religion and spirituality, the death of God, as Nietzsche said. So I think both of them, they were rallying against uh, the, the false prophet that they had uh, disliked and had been idolized in the society around them, and that was religion. And if you noted, I've very been very cautious to use the term spirituality and not religion. What's the difference? Well, I don't want to make it a semantic name game, but, the, but religion is dogma, is doctrine, is the bureaucratic form of spirituality, and by doing so it becomes a layer, an abstract, removed from the thing itself, and just becomes, it looks like, uh, it's, it's the Pentagon, but with crosses. That's not what I mean. Uh, separate from that had always been, if you will, the mystic tradition, the mystic of the entrepreneur of the Middle Ages who has a singular identification with something greater than themselves, something that might be so greater that is in inexplicable. Nicholas de Cusa, uh, one of the great theologians of the Middle Ages, referred to the term learned ignorance. And one of the most important mystical manuscripts in the Christian tradition in the 14th century is the cloud of unknowing. I mean, think about the cloud of unknowing. But it's not totally different than the Tao. The Tao that can be expressed is not the eternal Tao, is the first statement of Lao Tzu, nor of the idea of Shanti, which in the Hindu tradition uh, is said at the end of a yoga practice, which translates roughly as the peace which passeth understanding. Passeth understanding. In theology, there's something called the apophatic tradition, which is to say a negative theology that you don't know and to speak and to say something and use the this sublunar world words of the material sphere does a gross injustice that never comes close to in fact in fact betrays and moves us farther away from that which is immaterial that it's only in the stillness and in the silence of our interior dialogue after we've pushed away everything else do we get an insight that is meaningful to us that actually becomes the source of wisdom the Greeks call that kenosis, the emptiness, and where wisdom can flourish and blossom, maybe just for a second, but maybe the most meaningful second of our life. It's that which I'm referring to, which AI, relying only on information, not on the absence of information, the apophatic, means that AI will do incredible things using its logos, using analytical process, just logical reasoning. But humans don't only use that. They have a sort of spiritual element to them that they can't explain, but also is a part of who we are, and in some ways, the more meaningful part. And it's that element that I think we need to vaunt, and that AI, that with AI, we will vaunt because we will see it in counterpoise to the machine. I wonder if it's coincidental that we have, Ken, the rise of AI at the same time as we li live in an age of what I would at least call radical interiority in, in two ways. Firstly, the age of therapy, the age where everyone seems to be undergoing therapy of one kind or another. But secondly, and, and, and in some ways 
more interestingly, an age of interiority where we don't trust anything outside the self. No one trusts anyone or anything, no institutions, uh, no media, of course. And yet, we know what we think, and we know who we like, and we know who we disagree with. So this odd world where we're increasingly interior beings, for better or worse, increasingly isolated from others, from institutions which are all suffering one kind of legitimacy crisis or another, democratic institutions, economic institutions, cultural media institutions. So we're left alone and it's easy pickings in a sense for AI then to become this spiritual thing. Uh, what's the, the cliche about vacuums? They exist to be filled. I think there's something to that. Uh, your first book was The Rise of the Amateur, was it not? Cult of the Amateur, the cult, yes. the cult of the Amateur. So you're actually drawing a connection. That was about 15 years ago, almost 20 yeah. years ago. So you're actually drawing a very interesting arc between the two. If you've got the Cult of the Amateur on one side, and now you have the radical interiority of, 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 of humans today, which I think is actually a real thing, and I think you've coined a good term to describe what's going on. Um, Interesting because we have radical empiricism as well with AI insofar as we can run cycles as well. So this, it's an age of extremes, an age of radicalism in a way that the 20th century typically wasn't. There is, I think there is a, there's several vacuums happening at a time when, if I agree with you, that we do not trust anything except for that which we feel in our solar plexus, that that which is true to ourselves. At the same time, I, there's a meaning crisis. Uh, people today are desperate for something larger themselves that goes that, that, that taps into a sense of higher purpose and deeper meaning. They're not finding that in the society at large, and a lot of the institutions have proven themselves inept at fostering that because they've been shown to be fraudulent in that respect. Uh, and so the crisis is a real crisis. And it's not quite clear how you build that up, how you rebuild that, because I think there, that it did exist. It existed before <coughs> World War I, the great liberal project of the 19th century, a great secular project, as you cited Nietzsche, um, with God uh, being dead. When New Zarathustra comes down uh, from the mountains into the village, proclaiming God is dead, he also points, he's holding onto a lantern in daylight, madman. And he says, who killed him? You killed them. You all killed them, right? It was about civilization that had done it. He didn't die of his own. He died of the of human hand. And then, of course, World War I would sort of bankrupt the legitimacy of government as being a protector of people because, it, because you had the wisest countries of the world sending young men to their death. The other institutions from, from politicians that have just been putting their hand in the till to great academic institutions initially looking the other way when someone has been accused of plagiarism. You know, uh, everything about it just looks like there's, to news media organizations who are accused of fake news, some of whom were perpetrated, others who have not put up a muscular defense at why everything we do is fake news because it's very hard to encapsulate the totality of the universe and of, of reality into 300 words on deadline. 
And so we have to be defined by what we leave out, and we do leave things out. And we have to make the case that we're trying to focus on the relevant rather than the irrelevant, but we're always going to be in a world in which we can never get the totality of everything together. The map that is actual size is not a map whatsoever. In fact, it just becomes combinatorially explosive. So all institutions have suffered. Where do we go from this? Well, I think the first step is to harness that radical interiority for good. And what that would look like is this idea of rekindling a sense of, I'll call it the sacred, but it could be on a very secular level of sacredness, if you will, of the dignity of the individual, of what we owe to each other. As Albert Schweitzer put it, the will to life being transformed into the will to love. That if I have a will to life and you have a will to life and I need to, and I believe that there's a special element to support your life, I need to support you, that we in fact have a tie together and that there's a certain worth and a dignity to every single individual and that we are a stronger society when we are tolerant and we can allow that to flourish and we should have the least amount of constraint on each other so that we can all flourish. And we all need to owe that dignity to each other and that freedom to each other. This, is, this should not sound very radical. It's probably a very Christian motion, notion. It's also probably a very liberal notion as in 17th century British you know, philosophy of political liberalism. But it's just not being practiced in the world. In fact, I think we're moving farther and farther away from it. You can't even use the word liberal in the United States in that context because it just seems like it's a sniveling person on the left who's woke and extreme. And, uh, so I think we don't even have the language with which to express that form of dignity to each other. So it's interesting that I need to sort of harken back to the Middle Ages and, and a religious concept of the sacred and the holy to try to evoke this idea of worth, both self-worth and the worth of others. And I wonder if it's, again, not just coincidental that some of the other architecture of the Middle Ages are beginning to reappear. The fragmentation of power, radical inequality, um, uh, much of the, much of the, the cities of, of certainly of North America where I live, San Francisco, increasingly resembles a medieval city, a place of massive beggary and enormous wealth. So. Oddly enough, your thesis about spirituali spirituality, uh, its reappearance, fits with other things that are happening. The, the general failure or crisis of the, the modern project. Completely. And so the <clears throat> it begs the question, well, how do you uh, in, repair something that's in decay? How do you build back these bounds of, of tolerance? Or how do you change consciousness? Uh, I don't know the answer. I mean, if, if, if we knew it, we could apply it. Uh, and in fact, you'd have you know, people on different sides of the political spectrum saying, well, we should change consciousness and it just means immigrants should stay out. Um, uh, it's actually hard, quite hard to map on these, um, these principles to current political questions because you know, when it comes to abortion, you know, one side is very adamant that you have uh, you know, the right to choose the right to life for those who are living, and others who believe that they're taking liberalism to its logical conclusion, which is supporting all life, even that which is just in a zygote and blastocyst form. Uh, so it's, it's, it's 
beyond the superficialities, these are really tricky questions. I, I can, I absolutely affirm with uh, full throttledly that I have no answers. You know, I'm, I'm a wretched soul who's simply perpetually confused. However, I do think, I have a lot of tolerance for the question and for people on different sides of the aisle. And I do have a lot of uh, belief that raising these questions are going to help us find an answer because we must answer it never permanently, but always temporarily for our time today. Can the scientific elite, whatever you want to call them, the coastal elites, uh, dismissive of conspiracy theory, always falling back on science, but is the increasing popularity of conspiracy theory, both on the left and the right, is it another example of the new spirituality in our age of AI? I th weirdly, I think it is, and I think you're on to something with that. Um, the conspiracy theory is that which is, I wouldn't say spirituality, but maybe the religious, the sentiment for higher meaning, for seeing, for an appreciation of the mysterious. I do believe that there is an element to that that is appealing as we've, as we've shed uh, religion and ritual and the communal aspect of religion that conspiracy theories are flourishing because, because if you will, Christianity, it seems utterly uh, conspiracy theory-esque, right? From the sacraments to the holy days to the hidden symbols, but most importantly, to the drinking the blood and eating the flesh. And so uh, it, that it had become mainstream. We lose sight of the fact and became the sort of the the default setting for, for Western societies, we lose sight of the radical nature of it. And of course, it was almost never practiced, if anything, it became so deformed and distorted that it took Luther initially to launch the Reformation, and then uh, it still existed in its own um, spheres that's, that, that evoked the mysterious and could sort of tap into it and feed people's um, sense of wonder. And now the conspiracy theory is taking over and doing that. But I separate that from the spiritual, which I think is different. Uh, the spiritual having a direct connection to it. That doesn't, to reality being or maybe something beyond oneself, call it God, call it what you will. As opposed to religion, which is more of the communal aspect of dogma, doctrine, right, orthodoxy, ritual. And that's different because I think conspiracy theories are building communities around these radical ideas of which there is really no proof and requires a leap of faith. You mentioned Martin Luther. Of course, many people associate him with a kind of progress, the Reformation, the challenge to the authority of the church. But he, he was also, even in his own time, somewhat backward, certainly distinguished, if that's the right word, or marked, characterized by his hatred of Jews is the reappearance of anti-Semitism, which in an odd way goes hand in hand with uh, anti-Islamic feeling, is that another manifestation of our weirdly spiritual age? I don't think so. I think I, <clears throat> I tend to think the anti-Semitism, I don't know enough. I, I'm really, I'd love to entertain arguments by people who've thought about this more deeply on, on all sides. I suspect that, a, not all, but some of the anti-Semitism anti that we're seeing is born of a, a political outrage to what's, what, the, what Israel, as a political entity, has been do, doing and managing uh, in terms of the, the Palestinians in the occupied territories. So 
that's the anti-Semitism. It's not all. It doesn't explain all of it, but it explains certainly some of it. Because keep in mind, the people who would be in, you know, incredibly anti-Semitic today, it's not like they're going to church on, on Sundays. They're secular, right? So it's not like it's there is some sort of bloodlust because these are the these are the people who killed Christ, for example. Which they're not, but you get the idea. That's the sort of meme that goes around. Um, for the anti for the anti-Islamic sort of tendency as well, I think that's just in-group, out-group, and otherness. But I also think it is born of um, of uh, radical is uh, not all of Islam is radical Islam, but the but the radical political Islam component of Islam uh, just seems so objectionable to many people that they are brandishing the religion rather than this small uh, group that is using religion for that purpose. Ken, uh, the skepticism or irreligiosity of the Enlightenment seemed to reach a kind of climax, if that's the right word, with Bentham and his theories of utility, of maximizing pleasure and minimizing pain. In terms of the spiritual quality of AI, there seems to be an enormous paradox that the God of AI is a, is a, is a, is a spiritual manifestation of Bentham's utility, which has somehow aggregated all our pleasures and all our pains and lends itself potentially to world government and to the kind of wisdom that's always been missing in our world. Is that a, an exaggerated paradox or is that one of the, the interesting aspects of our, our return to spirituality in the AI age? Andrew, you're always incredibly unfair because you're going to ask a question that's going to require me a year of thinking before I can give you an answer. That's my revenge. Exactly. So, so I, I don't want to, I don't want to take the bait and try to say some some banality to a wise question. Let me let me try to unpack one or two dimensions of this and then get back to you in a year. So, <clears throat> the first one is I don't see the the connection to world government. So, let me put that off the table. Well, um, world algorithm, where theoretically, if we could aggregate all eight or nine billion of our pleasures and pains and all agree to the ground rules, then we could have world government. But it's, but it, yeah, um, I definitely don't want to go down the okay. WG, the world of the, the, the WG word. Okay, so let's just leave that aside. I, I take it, but let, let's talk about that another time. I think it becomes a distraction if we talk about it, uh, just because it just becomes cabalistic, right, in a weird way. Um, Let's go to the, you, the idea of utility that you're talking about and maximizing utility. And in fact, in AI, we refer to a utility function, right? So there's, there's actually, a, it's a very different thing, but it's just a, it's interesting that we're using the same term. So let's think of utilitarianism very specifically, what it's trying to do. It is actually, if you will, the, <clears throat> the economic theory of the mass, right? Because what you, it, it implies that there is this, this optimal, this optimum, that appeals to the majority of people. Okay, so there's almost a, if you will, in a democratic sense, you're trying to have an agglomeration of, of individual preferences and you're mapping and identifying that one element that leads to the greatest good for the greatest number. Wow. Talk about like a, 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 an intellectual framework born of the, the 1800s. 
Like, we are not in that world whatsoever. That is just like saying, oh, I'm, uh, my name is Brooks Brothers. I'm making a suit and I'm gonna make three sizes and everyone has to fit into those three sizes. And if you take the bell curve, I can get the mar largest amount of people right in the middle who can wear these three sizes of suits. Bullshit, right? We're not in that world anymore. If anything, the way that actually Brooks Brothers that went, went bankrupt, that is now coming out of bankrupt under new leadership, that seems really wise. What they're probably gonna do with any great Clothier is going to do is going to say, I'm going to get your measurements and I'm going to create a suit that suits you. It's going to fit you perfectly. In the past, the only way you could do it is to go to Bond Street in London to a tailor and get a custom-made suit. And now everything is going to be custom-made. Like, why wouldn't things be custom-made? The N equals one economy. After all, I go onto Google and I get a search and my search is pretty well tailored not entirely, but quite tailored to who I am using my data for my relevance of where I am at that moment and other things I searched for before. I go on to GPT, I get the exact same thing as my prompt, I get a unique answer back to me, right? I, what I don't do is, you know, the New York Times, I buy a copy of the New York Times physically in Manhattan, I open it up, and it's meant to go to six million people around the world, right? So you've got the economy of the mass of utilitarianism and the economy of the individual. I don't think that we're stuck in this benthinium trap in which we, are, we have to design all of our economic activities around the utility of the mass. I think, if anything, we're going to go in the absolute opposite direction in which we have the utility that's atomized to the individual. That's going to lead to a whole other set of problems because we can already see what happens in a mediascape when you have information that's tailored to the individual, well, they're no longer part of a community and they live in such a filter bubble that they get one version of the world and it's not the same as their neighbors. And then you don't, if you don't have a community, you don't have a society. You can't have a political, you can't even have political compromises because you don't have the same set of facts. As things begin to break down in the old industrial age, can democratic institutions, Alex Garland has a film out this year, 2024, about civil war in America. As we lose faith, in others, in our institutions, in our legal, other institutions. Uh, in your theory, will we wake up to this, the spirituality of AI? It's in the balance. I don't know if we will. I don't think everyone will, but we don't need everyone to do that. We just need some people to do that. <clears throat> I mean, it's a very, it's, um, progress doesn't happen because we all you know, understand Pythagoras' I mean, theorem. So, sorry to jump in here. The other film that I just went to see was Napoleon. This is the, the quintessential great leader. And all the reviews, uh, it was a Ridley Scott film, all the reviews said the same thing. It was an interesting film. I mean, it's a good film, but an interesting one in the sense that it, it didn't take a great man seriously, which reflects our age. We, we're in the business of pulling people down, whether it's Napoleon or Churchill. Um, in that context, will we suddenly discover AI? Is that the, 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 the spiritual promise? Is it a replacement for the great man? I think that for some people that will be a temptation. And of course, in Silicon Valley, there's already a church that has been sort of founded uh, by an AI engineer that 
that is going to be like the church of AI that praised AI because it realizes it's the superior being and unless we pay a tithe and, 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 and the respect and it's, uh, have a sense of duty to it, that in fact it'll crush us and, and run us amok. Um, I think that's a little bit a little bit silly, but I, I don't want to use the term silly. I think it's I think it's a bit misguided, um, only because I, if I'm pressed, I have to say that, on one hand, you know, the AI is, it is, if, if you will, definitionally a false idol. Like it's 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 a it's a god that we would then have created ourselves. Um, literally almost like a golem in our you know, some ways in our image right it's exactly what scripture has warned us about at the same time uh, it's I also sort of retreat from that because I do believe that there is something um, more deeper still you know mysterious dare I say sacred and that is us as us living beings human beings um, I see the the majesty, wonder, and mystery of it all the time. I just have to wake up and open my eyes. And so, uh, so I feel like I'm using, I'm not uh, investigating this as someone who, you know, belongs to a particular church that's trying to proselytize. I feel like I'm wearing the professional traits of a, of a journalist who's curious, who asks questions, and who's skeptical and probing. Uh, and also is trying to bear witness and see what is in the world around them and, and trying to make sense of it. And it's with that sort of journalistic instinct that I say, wait a minute, there's something going on here that's deeper, that's mysterious, we don't understand. Many people claim to know, and I think we, that deserves deeper reflection. What happens when the, there is a, one of the oldest traditions of human experience, that of the religious or the spiritual, meets a new phase in the evolution of mankind, artificial intelligence that will surpass our abilities and our ability to know. AI is all logos, no mythos. The Greeks had two forms of thinking, of reasoning. One was the logos, which was rational, analytical, logical thought, and the other was mythos. Not mythos as in myth, that is not true, but mythos as in that which is always true, this sort of spiritual, deeper truth, a timeless truth. And between the two, they thought that mythos was, was better to arrive at truth than, than logos. So it is that that I'm trying to bring back, a respect for the full totality of who we are as a species and how we think, not just vaunting sort of the, the tyranny of Logos. And I wonder whether this is all going to also go together with a new kind of science, quantum mechanics, in which traditional notions of science don't really make sense to us about time and place. You could be in the same place twice. Time doesn't work in, in a linear sense. It, it seems as if we're on the verge, and in, in, in addition, of course, to the discovery of other, or the theoretical discovery of other life forms in the universe, it, it seems we're on the, the border, on the, on the brink of another profound age, a scientific or perhaps a post-scientific age. So I, I, 
I think there's a lot to that. I would agree that um, in my peripheral vision, I've been looking at what's being written, uh, take applying qu quantum mechanics to society and to uh, deeper ways of thinking about the world. And it does seem like there's a rich area to explore. It's not one that I really feel I can talk about yet because it's just such a extraordinarily new way of thinking. But you're exactly right that if that I'm definitely a creature of the classical world of classical mechanics of Newton and a smidgen of Einstein. But the those who fully have been thinking about um, Einsteinian physics and of quantum mechanics, if 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 we apply how we see the world to that dimension of physical reality, then a, then we become immediately humbled. What we think is true and what we think is predictable completely changes. Yeah, it's I mean, that humility, uh, and it's yeah. a return to the humility of the Middle Ages, where the more we know, the smaller we become. In contrast, of course, the Enlightenment, which was the reverse. Exactly. No, exactly. And in some ways, well, with AI, boy, are we going to become a lot smaller, right? Because suddenly we already have a, a, a tool, a technique, a, an entity that surpasses us and surpasses us millionfold. I mean, the, 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 the joke which, is, which we're just sort of recognizing is some people are saying, does ChatGPT, has it passed the Turing test? And it just seems like such a ridiculous mm. thing to ask because the, the, the Turing test wasn't passed in a single moment. It was leapfrog a thousandfold, right? Like, like the, when Turing actually designed the test, it was supposed to be a teenager that it was being conversing with. Of course, we never thought it was going to be a PhD, you know, doctoral, you know, professor of every single subject under the sun. Right? That just wasn't part of our mental ken when we were thinking of passing the Turing test. And of course, that's what we have with GPT because it knows all knowledge, not just a, a small subset of it. And it does an incredible job of repeating things back in because of the training data, which is at high quality text. So um, just as we don't look at a rocket ship and ask, well, what is its horsepower? We have to use a different unit of measure. I think that we are becoming or ought to become extraordinarily humbled very similar to as we have been first with uh, Galileo and uh, the, the, the heliocentric theory of the universe as opposed to the geocentric. Uh, the Earth was just one of many planets orbiting the sun, not the one in the center of the universe. And then secondly, with Darwin, that we were not some sort of species that is above everyone else, but simply evolved differently, but we all share a common ancestor. And so humanity has had, had to take it on the chin twice been knocked off its pedestal and had to redefine itself and now we've got this third great moment of knockdown and, and redefinition required in self-identity and that is the this period of, of humanity and AI but what AI what humans can do that AI can't again is the spiritual and that's why I think we need to double down on our spiritual dimensions I hope we don't have glass chins speaking of the Turing test I don't think most humans could pass the, hum the Turing test, but that's a subject for another discussion. Finally, Ken, if what you're saying is true when you think of the Middle Ages and its 
humility, it's glorification, it's works of art, it's buildings. Might we be on the verge of another splendid age of creativity, of art, of ways in which we translate our spirituality into things, into feelings, into music, into art, into paintings? Probably. And the case for yes is that we have a new tool that makes it far, far more accessible. Uh, in the Middle Ages, if you wanted to be a great musician, you needed an instrument. There weren't that many. If you wanted to be a good musician and you had an instrument, you needed to tune it and you needed a tuning fork and you needed to have good pitch in order to take the, the tone that you heard from your tuning fork to tune your instrument and then you could start to become a good player. Now you can ante up and, and go into the arts or into writing with the most basic level of abilities and knowledge. And that's a beautiful thing for those people who want to participate in self-expression, but are only mediocre and are not extraordinarily good. Uh, if, if you can get derive some sort of self-satisfaction from that and enjoyment, which is what art should do. I mean, it's nice when other people appreciate it as well, but that need not be the case. It could be only for oneself, to understand oneself and the world. Um, that's a great thing. And now that we have that tool to help one along with it, mid-journey, ChatGPT, uh, we should use it. And so I think you'll get a flowering of, of the artistic as well as everything else. Paul Graham wrote a book comparing cathedrals and the internet. You're suggesting that the cathedrals of the 21st century will be these AI systems, which are advanced forms of the internet, essentially. I would question why we need to use the metaphor of the cathedral. First, it's only a metaphor, but what are we trying to evoke? when we say cathedral? Is it that it's took a long time, that it's going to endure? The sublime and the humble, so somehow com the combination of the two. We wrapped our cathedrals with gargoyles to remember that within the beauty was the beast. <laughs>